If you join me in Bible study this morning, please open up to the book of 2 Thessalonians to chapter 2. As you're turning there, remember that 1 Thessalonians was the first of the epistles that Paul wrote. And in every chapter, he talks about the rapture and the resurrection. Because he only had three weeks to preach to the people in Thessaloniki, Greece, until he had to go over to Corinth. Three weeks of instruction they had. And what did Paul use as the carrot to keep them on course? The hope of the rapture and the resurrection. To be ready when the Lord blows that trumpet to catch us all home. And unfortunately, they misread some of the things Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians and thought, gee, the Lord's coming the next week or so. So many of them quit their jobs. They sold their properties. They moved to a house top and they started singing Kumbaya. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul said, wait, wait, you misunderstood some things. Yes, the Lord is coming for his bride. Yes, he's going to sound the trumpet, but it's not in the next week or two. What did the scripture say in Hosea chapter 6? How long between the first and second coming? 2,000 years. He just hadn't had a chance to cover that yet with those in Thessaloniki. So in 2 Thessalonians, he tries to correct some understanding. In fact, some of the people have been told that the day of the Lord has come, the rapture and resurrection's come, and you missed it. Oh, well, sorry. You just have to live out your life and die. You just missed the ride home. So Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 to say, wait a minute, concerning the gathering together to him, that rapture and the resurrection, until that happens, the day of the Lord cannot begin. And since you're still here, it hasn't happened yet. I can tell you and I the same thing. We're still here, so it hasn't happened yet. 85% of the people who call themselves Christian in this world thinks it happened 2,000 years ago. They need to reread 2 Thessalonians. Messiah is coming. He will take us home. And then there will be seven years of tribulation, followed by the Messianic kingdom on earth. And that's where we pick up today in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 with verse 13. Paul's just told us about how those who get misled by the false Messiah to take the beast and to worship his image and to lose any hope of salvation, they do it because they did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That is, they did not want to give up their sin. Oh, my when we come to the realization that Yeshua is the Messiah, that he died for us, was buried, was raised again, that his blood washes away our sins, we get a clean slate. But then what happens with a clean slate? You start to write on it, don't you? And the question is, what do you write on it? If you continue in your sin, are you on the road to heaven? You are not. The process of removing the sin from your lives is called sanctification. What do you think verse 13 is about? Sanctification. You cannot be saved and continue to walk in sin. It doesn't work like that. What did we study last night in Jeremiah chapter 6? What did the people want? They wanted the blessings of God without repentance. And Jeremiah said, that doesn't work. The scribes and Pharisees wanted salvation and the blessing of God without repentance. And they found it doesn't work. So in 
Andy Stanley and such preachers today preach salvation without repentance. What's that old expression? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over again expecting a different result. Not going to work now either. So verse 13 says, but, that's why we had to talk about what happened before, but doesn't start a new topic, does it? Continues the topic. And the topic is, you must believe the truth and not walk in unrighteousness. What's another term for unrighteousness? Lawlessness. What did Messiah say in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23? Will he say to those come judgment day who walked in lawlessness, I never knew you. So verse 13, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you. You referring to those in Thessaloniki who believed, who accepted the gospel message, who got saved by faith, and have been walking in the righteousness of God. Brethren, beloved by the Lord, does the Lord love his children? Yes. yes. Does the Lord love his enemies? Not the same way, no. Because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through, uh-oh, salvation through sanctification. That means if we don't want to be sanctified, if we don't want to turn from our sins, are we on the path to salvation? No. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Oh, that's a statement full of topics. Sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Let's turn back all the way back to Jeremiah chapter 31. Many people talk about the new covenant without even knowing what it is. The terms of the new covenant are given to us in Jeremiah chapter 31. Look at verse 33. I have a question out there. Let me see. Okay. Verse 33. But this is the covenant that I'll make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. The, covenant is, the new covenant is between God and whom? Israel. What about the Gentiles? Those that are saved by faith are what? Grafted in. Romans chapter 11. Like a wild olive tree being grafted into a cultivated tree. Paul uses also this, the symbolism in Ephesians chapter 2 to say once you got saved, you became part of the commonwealth of Israel, the house of Israel, the children of Israel. Those terms all refer to the same thing. Those who have come to God by faith and walk before him in love. So this is the covenant that I make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law, that Hebrew word is Torah, God's commandments, statutes, and judgments in their minds and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. How can pastors preach today that you're in the new covenant so the law doesn't apply anymore? This says when you're in the new covenant, the law is written on your hearts and your minds. Which means it becomes your desire to do it. You want to follow God. How many of you had a loving father? When he asked you to do something, did you go, no, you can't make me? Or did you say, yes, Papa? I guess I'm thinking of Fiddler on the Roof. Yes, Papa. But at any rate, back to the 
scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. Notice the sanctification is through the spirit and belief in the truth. So salvation is through sanctification by the Spirit, talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells inside the believers to help us want, understand and interpret the Word of God, the Scriptures, right? But what is the word truth there? Hmm. First, let's look at sanctification. Let's go back to his very first use to see what that word even means. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, the first place the word is used in our English Bibles. Start in verse 1. There have been six days in all of the world at this point. And the six days are finished. Thus the heavens and the earth and all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested. That word rested is Shabbat, Sabbath. That's what that word is. On the seventh day, from all his work which he had done, then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. There it is. He sanctified it. He set it apart. It is different from the other days of the week. Sunday through Friday are one like another. But... The seventh day, which we call today Saturday, or in Spanish, Sabado, which means Sabbath, or in Portuguese, it's also the word Sabbath. That day is different. It's not like the others. When you read through the scripture, the Sabbath day, it doesn't say the Sabbath day in Hebrew. It says the day of the Sabbath, meaning the day that God rested. When you keep and honor the Sabbath day, you're saying God is my God. He is my creator. He's the one who created the heavens and the earth. We didn't evolve from monkeys. God created the heavens and the earth. He's my God. And in Exodus chapter 32, 31 verse 12, thank you. God says, it's like your wedding ring. It's the sign that you are my children when you honor my Sabbath. So that's the first time it's used. Let's go now to the book of Matthew, to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 23. Let's look at the Lord's words. Matthew chapter 23, verse 17. Fools and blind. Uh-oh. You don't want God to be talking to you now. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? Oh, okay. Yes, they used gold to plate the walls of the temple. And before they did that, it was just gold. And gold is nice, it's pretty, we like it. But once God's presence is there, now the gold is different. It's set apart, it's sanctified. Can you now go take a piece of gold off that and go out and buy something in a marketplace? No, because it's holy. That's what sanctification means, is being made holy. Same word, being Wait. made holy. Yes, sir? Um, I really like what you've just said. It's just the first time you mentioned sanctification, you used an expression which is very traditional which is the 
gradual getting rid of sanctification of a person is getting rid of the sin in their lives and I think that's part of our historical tradition and it's moved us away from the fact that the heart of sanctification is separating us from the world right setting us apart and when it's turning in John 17 it it's the same word it uses I sanctify myself that you be sanctified or whatever that idea and always they translate instead of saying I've set myself apart that you might be set apart which is a much we that's much more concrete to hold on to we have this sort of almost doves flying off the fingertips for the word sanctification in our tradition yeah so it becomes um, and I I really like to keep very firmly in my mind it's moving me to be more and more set apart different from the world right um, and would you believe John 17 is where we're going next because that's exactly the trail we're following sanctification the word itself in Hebrew means to make oneself holy to move oneself away from the sins of the world to put that behind us to no longer do that it's like Paul said in Ephesians go to Ephesians 4 before we go to John 17 Ephesians 4 Galatians Ephesians Philippians Colossians Ephesians 4 verse 17 Ephesians chapter 4 Verse 17. This I say therefore and testify in the Lord. Can it be untrue if he's testifying in the Lord? No, it's true. That you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility or perverseness of their mind. Meaning once you get saved, you cannot continue to walk in sin. You separate yourself from it. You put it away. You repent of it. It's not your lifestyle anymore. You don't want that anymore. And if you go down to verse 22, it continues the same sentence even. That you put off concerning your former conduct. Put it away. The old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you put on the new man, referring to Ephesians 2 which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. That's the heart of sanctification. You put aside the sins of the past. You set yourself apart to God. You walk before God in true righteousness. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. So you put it away. Lawlessness is gone. We're walking in accordance with God's commandments and holiness. And what does it say in Hebrews 12? Without holiness... No one will see God. Now on to John 17. Because Edmund is right. John 17 is very important. We'll go from verses 17 to 19. But I want you to notice, even before we start to read verse 17, verse 3. So John 17, 3, since you're in the same chapter and I'm just stalling and tap dancing as I see people still turning pages. Verse 3 says, and this is eternal life. Do you want eternal life? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. 
If you remember 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, how do we know that we know God? When we keep his commandments. What if we say we know God and don't keep his commandments? It says we're a liar. So with that in mind, go to verse 17. Sanctify them by your truth. Wait a minute. That's what we saw in 2 Thessalonians, right? By the Spirit and truth. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. What does he mean, your word? The scriptures. The scriptures. Every word that came out of the mouth of God. So which of God's commandments are now a lie? None. It's all truth. In fact, there's four things that the Bible says is truth. Let's go back. The first is in Psalm 119. Keep a finger here in John 17 before you turn away. Go back to Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 142. Psalm 119, verse 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness. Meaning, does God's righteousness ever change? Does God change what he means by righteousness or what he requires? No. Psalm 119, verse 142. She says, I'm not in the right place because mine didn't read like that. Okay. There, Psalm 119, 142. Your righteousness is an everlasting righteousness and your Torah, your law, is truth. What is the law? What do they mean by that? It's God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. What did Messiah say in Matthew chapter 5, verse 18? Till heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the smallest piece of letter would pass away from God's commandments. Are heaven and earth still here? Then so are God's commandments. But Wayne, that's not what I was taught growing up. It's not what I was taught either. But you know what? Sometimes we're not taught exactly correct. What did the Bereans do that Paul commended them for? When they were taught something, what did they do? They went to the word of God to say, is it true or not? If I tell you something, does that make it true? Not necessarily. If God tells it to you, does that make it true? Yes. So when I tell you something, where do you go to check it? The word of God. Because God will never lie to you. What does 142 say? Your law is truth. Now look at verse 160 of the same chapter. Psalm 119, verse 160. The entirety of your word is truth. Is that what we just read in John 17, 17? Your word is truth? Can any word of God be contrary to the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God that we call the law? No, or they can't both be truth. If the Torah is truth and the entirety of God's word is truth, they must agree. Any arguments on that? Then let's add to it. It goes on to say, and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. And now we have to go to John 14, verse 6. John 14, verse 6. That's not the only thing that the Bible says is truth. John 14, verse 6. 
Shouldn't be hard to find since you're holding a finger at verse 17, right? Chapter 17, verse 17. But John 14, 6 says, Yeshua said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If Yeshua is truth, and he is, can he contradict the word of God? He cannot. Can he contradict the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God? He cannot. But we have one more to add to it. 1 John chapter 5, verse 6. First John chapter 5, verse 6. Normally when we turn to 1 John, it's to chapter 5, it's for verses 2 and 3. Verse 3 says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. His commandments are not burdensome. But the verse we came to here is verse 6. This is he who came by water and blood, Yeshua the Messiah. Not only by water, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who bears witness, because the Spirit is truth. So, the Torah is truth. The entire Word of God is truth. Messiah Yeshua is truth. And the Holy Spirit is truth. So, can they disagree? The answer is no. So, I have many people that come up to me and say, Wayne... I got a prophecy from God. The Holy Spirit says these commandments are gone. They're done away with. You're telling me the Holy Spirit is now differing from the word of God? Can't be. So let's go back to John 17. Whoops. Wayne. Yes, sir. You do, the, the fact you just put those three together and first chapter of John, in the beginning was the word. That's one of the things that Jesus is the Word, the Word of God is the Word, the Holy, it all ties it all together. It's, uh, um, it puts a nice little bow around in. it, doesn't it? Yeah. And it means they cannot contradict one another if they are all truth. So back in John 17, verse 17 said, Sanctify them by your truth, your word is truth. So to sanctify them, what tells us how to leave the sins of the world? God's commandments. If we follow God's commandment that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery, will we commit adultery? No, we'll leave that sin behind. He says, Thou shalt not steal, we leave stealing behind. All those things we used to do, thinking, well, you know, it's just a piece of candy from the grocery store. They won't really notice we don't do that anymore, do we? That's wrong. It's behind us. Verse 18 says, As you have sent me, that's Messiah Yeshua, into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. When Messiah says, I sanctify myself, what does that mean? I'm setting myself apart to God's commandments so that I can be an example. Oh my goodness. What does 1 Corinthians 11.1 1 say? Paul says, imitate me as I also imitate Messiah. 1 John chapter 2 verse 6 says that if we are believers, we should what? Imitate Messiah. Turn to John 15 and let's read Messiah's own words. Verse 10. 
If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. When he says, I have sanctified myself, I set myself apart, I follow God's commandments. I follow them to the letter. Where's the prophecy in the Old Testament? It's exactly, go back to Isaiah chapter 11. This prophecy was written about 700 years before Messiah was born. Isaiah chapter 11. I see a number one out there. Let me check and see what the chat is. Yeah, that's true, Miss Susie. There shall come forth a rod. It's not the word rod. It's the word shoot, as in a little plant that begins to grow. From the stem of Jesse, it's not the stem, it's the stump. A tree in prophecy represents a kingdom and a throne. And it looks like the Davidic throne has been cut down like a tree felled in the forest. It looks like it's dead, just an old dead stump. But out of that stump comes forth a shoot that is new life, new growth, new representation. That's Messiah coming to sit on the throne of David. And a branch shall grow out of his roots. In every place in scripture where you see the word branch referring to Messiah, it's what? Zamach, but not here. This one is Netzer. Netzer is the root of the word Nazareth. Where was Messiah grown up? In Nazareth. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. Every say one. Thank you. The Spirit of wisdom, say two. And understanding, say three. The Spirit of counsel, say four. And might, say five. The Spirit of knowledge, say six. And of the fear of the Lord, say seven. In Revelation chapter 5, it refers to the seven spirits of God. This is the sevenfold spirit upon Messiah. Then verse 3 says, his delight is in the fear of the Lord. That is his delight, his pleasure was to do all that God commanded. And that's exactly what Messiah says he did in John chapter 15, as we just read. So let's finish up this topic, this verse, with 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is what God wants from us is to set ourselves apart leave the sins of the world behind and walk before him in righteousness without spot and blemish. Is he looking for a a bride that's all filthy from the sins of the world or is he looking for that spotless bride? Spotless bride. Says that you should abstain from sexual immorality and, so it goes on. So the sins of our past leave in the past. Let it go. So let's go back now to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14. Before I go, back in 13. Back in 13. You know, this really kind of pulls the pin off the grenade for a lot of people as far as their idea of salvation. 
It pulls the pin off grenade for a lot of people about their idea of salvation was simply that they acknowledge Yeshua as the Messiah and then they can go walk in sin and it doesn't matter anymore. See, That's not true. If you think about this in line with 1 Peter chapter 1, it talks about salvation being our goal. Salvation is the goal. Where in Scripture does it say we have been permanently saved? It doesn't. The verbs always, if you go look at the Greek, we are being saved. We are we have a goal of being saved. And the scripture says if we turn from our walk in righteousness and go walk in sin and lawlessness, where do we end up? Like a fire. Second Peter chapter 3, right? Yeah. In fact, let's go look at Second Peter chapter 3. Because uh, people oftentimes read through words too quickly. I don't know if I'm saying that quite right. I used to do that. I used to read through the Bible to get done. If you read through the Bible to get done, what do you accomplish? You get done. That's it. When you read it for understanding, sometimes it takes a little longer. But in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, Peter says this, Therefore, therefore means because of what I just talked about, which is that judgment day is coming and all of our works are going to be judged, good or bad. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace without spot and blameless. What's that mean, without spot and blameless? Tamim. Been sanctified, been set apart, taken away the sins of the world and coming to God to cling to him. Consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation is also our beloved brother Paul according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles. Notice the word all. Paul always is encouraging people to turn from sin and walk in righteousness. Speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. Peter was a simple fisherman. Paul learned at the feet of Gamaliel. Just i got to fix something here. Okay. Which untaught and unstable people, that is, those who do not have a good background in the scriptures, twist to their own destruction. They think they're following Paul because they didn't understand what Paul said. And they twist to their own what? Destruction. As they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. Is that quite a warning? Quite a warning. So go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. How can we misunderstand Paul? Mm. Romans 10.4. Let's go look at Romans 10.4. There's another what? Another grenade. Romans 10.4. It says very clearly, as I've heard a hundred preachers teach at least, for Christ is the end of the law. Period. There's not a period. It says, for Messiah is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. But that word end in Greek is telos, not teleo. It means Messiah is the goal of the law. 
The purpose of the law is to lead us to Messiah. It doesn't mean he terminates it. Let's look at another place. That same word telos is used. Let's go to 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5. Now the purpose of the commandment is love from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and from sincere faith. That word purpose is that same word telos that was translated end in Romans 10.4. This is the meaning of this word. How many of you watched a football game in your life? When a team reaches the end zone, is the game over? But it's the end zone. Well, what's another term for the end zone? Is the goal line. So the end zone is end is in the goal. It's what we're trying to reach. Another place to go to look at this same word is in James chapter 5 verse 11. James chapter 5 verse 11. Indeed, we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord, that the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. That word end is the same word, telos. Does that mean when you persevere, God brings you to an end, you're terminated? No, that's the goal. Okay, so back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Before I get off course, I never do that. To summarize verse 13 again. Paul, Timothy, and Silas are praising God for the Thessalonians who understood the preaching of Paul, got saved by faith, have turned away from the pagan idolatry in which they were raised and sexual immorality in which they were raised and have embraced the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God to walk in righteousness and holiness before him. And it says, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through. Through means this is the means by which salvation comes. Sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. Which is another way of saying, if you continue in your sinful ways of the past, you may think you're on the road to heaven, but you're not. Mm. Go back to Romans 6. Romans was written much later. And Paul keeps answering this same question. He's getting much better at it by the time we get to Romans 6. In Romans 6, Paul is preaching to people who got saved. Saved by faith. There's no other way. Saved by faith. And he asked then in chapter 6, verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And answers that in verse 2 with, Certainly not. Or in the King James, God forbid. In verse 16 he says, Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves servants to obey, 
you're that one's servants whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. He's talking to believers. And says, if you choose to turn from the path of righteousness and go back to your ways of sin, where does he say that's going to lead? To death. Or of obedience, that is to God's commandments, statutes, and judgments. Where do they lead? To righteousness. Verse 19 says, I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. He just called them dumb. For just as you presented your members, that's your body parts, as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, that's how you were before you got saved, he says. So now, now that you've been saved, present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. I think he said it pretty clearly there. So let's go back to 2 Thessalonians to chapter 2 and actually do verse 14. To which he called you. To which refers to the salvation through sanctification by the spirit and belief in the truth. To which he called you by our gospel. So Paul's message that Messiah was crucified, buried, and rose again also includes... Now repent of your sins and walk in righteousness. Sometimes I think it may be helpful to go back to the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 3, Messiah was baptized, even though he'd never committed a sin. And he says, why, in verse 15, when John says, wait a minute, I need to be baptized by you, why are you coming to me? He says, permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 4, after the baptism, he's being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He's hungry, he's been fasting for how long? 40 days and 40 nights. I'd be hungry too. Satan says, if you're the son of God, command these stones become bread. But Messiah's answer was what? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So which words came out of the mouth of God that are no longer important? They're all important. And then as soon as Satan is defeated, in verse 17 it says, Messiah's message from that point on. From that time, Yeshua began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was his first word? Repent. Repent means to turn away from your sin, to put it behind you. That begins the process of sanctification. Now separate yourself from that sin. Separate yourself to God and walk with him in righteousness. He called you to sanctification. John 17, 17, we already looked at, but put it in your notes, that if we hadn't already looked at it, we'd look at it now. And let's add to it Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Starting in verse 25. 
People say, wait a minute, this is about husband and wives. Yes, it's a picture of Messiah and his bride. We should treat our brides as Messiah would treat his. So verse 25 says, Husband loves your wives just as Messiah also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, having not a spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. He gave himself so that we could have the opportunity to be sanctified and be holy without spot or blemish. And if you go to Revelation chapter 19, it describes the bride of Messiah. It describes the bride. Verse 7. Revelation 19, verse 7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. For unto her it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. What word did he just use that is so informative? The righteous acts of the saints. The saints are described in Revelation 14, 12. The word Christian appears three times in the Bible, just three. Always used by outsiders in a derogatory fashion. More than 60 times, the believers refer to themselves in the New Testament as the saints. And here describes the saints, verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Yeshua. That word saints is in Greek hagios and it means the holy ones. Those that have set themselves apart from the world. Set themselves apart to God. The word sanctification is hagiosmos. Uh-huh. Like I said, the word sanctify means to make holy. To make oneself holy. It's one of those verbs that you have to make a choice to do. It's one of those Hebrew verbs. Okay, back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 15. Therefore, brethren, when he says brethren, who does he mean? Believers, saints. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or our epistle. That word traditions is parodesis. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew word halakha. We've seen it before. Go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 1 and 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Verses 1 and 2. 
Paul says, imitate me just as I also imitate Messiah, meaning do as I do, for I do as he did. Now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions, the parodicists, just as I delivered them to you. But this is about the Gentile church at Corinth and how they're keeping Passover. When he says to keep their traditions, one of those traditions he taught them was to keep Passover. How do we know that? Turn back a couple of pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Most all of 1 Corinthians is about how do we keep Passover properly. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we'll start in verse 6. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, what's leaven a picture of? Sin. Leaven's the whole lump. Therefore purge out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. Since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Messiah, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast. What feast? Passover. Not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Paul is teaching this Gentile church at Corinth how to keep Passover and how to do it properly. That Greek word, Protestus, if you're curious, is Greek word 3862. Let's also go to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Colossians chapter 2. It's right before 1 Thessalonians. Do you remember in Mark chapter 7 and Matthew chapter 15, Messiah called the scribes and Pharisees a group of hypocrites? Because as their doctrine, they teach the commandments of men rather than the commandments of God. Remember that? I see two people saying yes. Okay, that's close. So Colossians 2.8 comes on top of that. It says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Messiah. Are we to keep the traditions of God or the traditions of men? The traditions of God. Now, since we're here, I keep having this question raised. What about Colossians 2 verses 15 and 16 and 17, etc.? Since it's in this same chapter and it's on this same topic. Again, verse 8. Listen to the words carefully. Beware lest anyone cheat you. Cheat you of what? Of your reward. Through philosophy and empty deceit. That is not from the word of God. But from the mind of men. According to the tradition of men. According to the basic principles of the world. That phrase is the phrase referring to the teachings of Gnosticism. Notice it talks about philosophy, deceit. And not according to Messiah. Go to verse 15. Colossians 2.15. 
Having disarmed principalities and powers, does that mean Messiah defeated God? No. The principalities and powers are the powers of Satan. Colossians 2.15 Having disarmed principalities and powers, he defeated Satan and the powers of darkness. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So, does so start a new topic? No. It's all about how Messiah in his death, burial, and resurrection defeated Satan and his man-made principles. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. I've heard many, many preachers preach this verse and they put a period after Sabbath. And they say, this says... We're no longer supposed to avoid unclean foods and keep the Sabbath and keep the festivals. But it's just the opposite. Let's keep reading and we'll see. Which are a shadow of things to come. Anybody out there using an NIV? NIV says which were a shadow of things to come. They changed it from present tense are to past tense to make you think they've been done away with. But the Greek says, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Messiah. So the food and drink laws, the festivals like Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, etc., the new moons, the Sabbaths, they teach about whom? They teach about Messiah, his first and second coming. Messiah died at Passover, was buried on leavened bread, he arose at the feast of first fruits. The Holy Spirit came at the feast of weeks in Acts chapter 2. And in the fall, it teaches the rapture and resurrection, his physical second coming and the establishment of the kingdom on earth. They teach about Messiah. It says verse 18, let no one cheat you, just as we read in verse 8, of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels. Is that God's commandments? Did God command us to worship angels? Absolutely not. In Gnosticism, you have helpers that help you gain special knowledge to lead you to Godhood, and they're called aeons, they're angels. So those in Gnosticism worship angels. It's not from God's Torah. Taking delight in false humility, worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. What's the Greek word for mind? Gnosis. That's where we get Gnosticism. And not holding fast to the head. The head is Messiah. So don't let someone take away these things that teach of Messiah and take you back to man-made, satanically inspired principles taught by men. So from the head, from whom all the body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. Therefore, if you died with Messiah from the basic principles of the world, remember that from verse 8? Why as though living in the world you subject yourselves to regulations, do not touch, do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. Why would you let them take away the commandments of God and replace them with commandments and doctrines of men? Let's turn back to Mark 7 and see what God says if you're Worship is based upon the commandments of men. Mark chapter 7, verses 6 and 7. 
So when you hear a preacher say, this says don't keep these, it's just the opposite. It's saying don't let these things go because they teach of Messiah. So Mark 7, 6 and 7, he answered and said to them, well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites? As it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. If your worship is based on the commandments of men, the Lord says it's in vain. Who said keep the Sabbath? God did. Who said don't keep the Sabbath, do Sunday instead? That was man in the 4th century at the Council of Laodicea in Canon 29. Who said keep Passover? God. Who said no, don't do Passover, do Easter instead? That was the Pope and Constantine at the Council of Nicaea. That's that letter I keep sending out for everybody to read where they announce the change. Do they announce the change because, oop, we've been doing it wrong? No, they announce the change saying we will do nothing like the Jews. So if God commanded it, we're not going to do it. We're going to do these pagan principles instead. We're going to replace it. So how many times does Passover and Easter occur in different months? And sometimes people go, why is that? Because Easter doesn't come from Christmas or Passover. It comes from pagan sun worship. Enough said. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians. I'm getting preachy now. I don't want to get preachy. Verse 16. Now, may our Lord Yeshua the Messiah himself and our God and Father. Is he saying the Lord Yeshua the Messiah is our God and Father? Yes, he is. Who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. Let's go back to Matthew 25, 46 to help us understand this verse. Matthew 25, verse 46. The verse we just read talked about everlasting consolation. That's the topic of Matthew 25, 46. But not everyone goes to an everlasting life, do they? Verse 46 tells us there are two eternal destinations. Each are eternal. And you get to pick which one you go to. It says, and these will go away into everlasting punishment. That's the lake of fire. But the righteous into eternal life. The righteous go into eternal life. What's the opposite of righteousness? Lawlessness. Those who practice lawlessness are going away into everlasting punishment. Why would anyone ever choose everlasting punishment over eternal life? They don't believe it's going to happen. Go back to Matthew chapter 7. Messiah tells us. That's what it boils down to is a lack of faith. God wouldn't do that. There used to be signs all over Jasper just a couple years ago that said Jesus loves and saves everyone. It's not there anymore. That's true. But were those signs ever true? No. no. In Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. 
in verses 13 and 14, Messiah is going to talk about an entire group of folk, all of whom believing they're saved and on the path to eternal life. Verse 13, it says, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. Destruction is the lake of fire. And there are many who go in by it. They think they're on the road to heaven, but they're not. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Why do most who think they're on the way to heaven find out come judgment day that they're not? Because of verse 15, beware of false prophets, false teachers, who come to you in sheep's clothing. They pretend to be God's ministers. They may even think they are. It says, but inwardly they're ravenous wolves. So their doctrine comes not from the Bible, but from other places. And verses 21 to 23 bring it home. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. So those who call Messiah Lord, he says, not all are coming into the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, what day? The day of the Lord. That's when judgment day is. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? They're saying these things prove we're saved. And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Those who don't walk in righteousness, but walk in lawlessness, believing that they can be saved while walking in the sins of the world. Find out at judgment day that that wasn't so. What can you do about it then? Not a thing. It's appointed a man once to die, and then the judgment. Let us now turn to a question that was submitted because it's really right on point. Turn to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew chapter 25. Start in verse 1. It really is right on point. Matthew 25 verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins. The word virgin means they are preparing themselves to be the bride. So these ten virgins all believe they are going to be the bride to Messiah's bridegroom. So they all believe they're saved. Who took their lamps. What kind of lamps did they have in those days? With double A batteries, triplet? No, they were oil lamps, right? So they take their lamps and they go out to meet the bridegroom. In the ancient Jewish wedding ceremony, which teaches about the second coming of Messiah for his bride, the bridegroom comes with a witness, but they can't come to the bride's house. They stop a distance away, they shout and blow a trumpet, and the bride who's made herself ready comes out to meet them. So all ten believe that they're saved, that they're going to go out to meet the Messiah, he's going to take them up to heaven to the wedding chambers for the wedding ceremony. They went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise and five were foolish. That is five are saved, five aren't. But they all think they are. 
Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. You know, there's what? They assume that the lamp is full of oil. So since they assume it's full of oil, they don't see a need to go getting. What does oil picture? The Holy Spirit. They say we're saved, therefore our lamps must be full of oil. Therefore, no need to check. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. The wise are going to make sure that they have the oil that they think they have. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Here's the Teruah, come out to meet the bridegroom. Behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. So what are they trimming? They're trimming the wick. Getting the wick ready to light. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. So what happens if you light the wick and there's no oil in the lamp? What happens to the wick? It just burns up and it's gone. So now they realize, uh-oh, I should have checked to make sure there was oil in the lamp, but I didn't. I just assumed there was. The foolish said to the wise in verse 8, Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. Can you share your salvation with somebody else? No, each one of us has to be saved by ourselves. But the wise answer saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but rather go to those who sell and buy for yourselves. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, as surely I say to you, I do not know you. See those words, I do not know you. Do they sound a lot like I never knew you? Yeah, so let me read you the question. In Matthew 25, there's the parable of the ten virgins. Here's my question up front. If the foolish five did not plan on having or carrying oil with themselves as they waited for the bridegroom, why did they even bother to have the lamps in hand? Well, they did plan on having and carrying oil with themselves. They assumed it was in the lamp. They assumed they were saved by faith. No reason to check. Does the Bible give us a test to see whether we are or not? It does. But they just knew. It says this parable clearly identifies the oil as representative of the spirit. That's true. But why would the foolish virgins carry around lamps without oil in the first place? The answer is because they assumed there was oil in the lamp. It says one can probably safely assume that the foolish have not thought about the full consequences of the return of the bridegroom. But what have they been thinking? Like those on the broad path in Matthew chapter 7 are thinking we're saved. After all, I walked down the aisle of a church one day, repeated after the pastor, and he gave me a bath. Therefore, I'm saved, right? No, there's more to it than that. So since they, were, they have an expectation of being brides, I guess that they identify as believers of Yeshua. That's right. They believe they are. But are they doers? The answer is no, they're not. They're like the lawless ones who thought they were saved because, well, they called the Lord, Lord, and they did these things that they think show that they're saved, but they don't follow the commandments of God. So since they have an expectation of being brides, I guess they identify as believers of Yeshua, but are they doers? No. Well, there are still those lamps that they carry around. What's that supposed to indicate? It's supposed to indicate the fact that they believe they're saved. They believe their lamp is full of oil. They believe the Holy Spirit is in their hearts. 
says, maybe the idea of carrying oil all the time for a bridegroom contingency is too much commitment for them. Why do people prefer to walk in sin? Scripture says, because they love the sin more than they love righteousness. It says, but is carrying a lamp without oil a lesser commitment? It's actually not a commitment at all. Or are they just fooling themselves into thinking that they are very committed? That's where I agree with them. That's what they're thinking. When in fact, they're just foolish. There's a very subtle distinction to those foolish ones carrying those useless lamps. It just makes me wonder, what does Yeshua want us to get as we apply this parable to our own lives? What he wants us to get is this. Be sure. Check out your own heart. Is it full of oil? Does the Holy Spirit reside in you? The scripture tells us clearly how we can test ourselves. Go to Matthew to John. We'll go to John 17 3. John 17 3. And this is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and Yeshua the Messiah whom you have sent. In 1 John chapter 2, written by the same author gives us a test that we can use to look in our own hearts. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In many Bibles, it's titled, The Test of Knowing Him. And that's what it is. Do you know Him, or do you think you know Him? 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Somebody asks, how do you fill up with the oil? The answer is, you get saved by faith and walk in righteousness. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Now by this we know that we know him. Remember John 17, 3. To know him is to have eternal life. She could substitute here. Now by this we know that we have eternal life if we keep his commandments. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. This does not say that we are saved by works. That's not possible. It says that if you are saved by faith and you love God, what is the love of God? Says 1 John chapter 5. Let's turn to that. 1 John chapter 5. How do you show your love to God? 1 John chapter 5 verse 3. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. How did God show his love to you? He sent his only begotten son. In Hebrew, love is an action verb. How do you treat people? God demonstrated his love by sending his only begotten son to die for us. How do we show our love to God? It says by keeping his commandments. If we don't keep his commandments, that's John chapter 14. That means we don't love him according to the Lord himself. Remember the new covenant. The law is written on our hearts. It becomes our heart's desire to keep them. We want to. John 14. John 14 verse 15 says, If you love me, comma, Keep my commandments. Verse 23 in the red it says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, 
We will come to him, make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. But the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Turn to the book of Luke, chapter 6, verse 46. Luke 6, verse 46. What color are the words? They're red. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? What does the word Lord mean? It means master. It says, why do you call me master, the one I obey? Then you don't obey. But aren't the commandments just for Jews? Oh no, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I don't think I was ever so shocked as when I looked to see when the word Jew first appears in the Torah. And find it's not there at all. The word Jew doesn't appear until 2 Kings. The commandments are not about being Jewish or Gentile. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. But keeping the commandments of God is what matters. doesn't matter how you were born, whether you were born Jewish or Gentile. What matters is do you keep the commandments of God because you will only do that out of love. Because of the faith you have. Do you believe? Yes, ma'am, Miss Rachel. That sounds very much like Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Let's hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Is that what it says? It says, because God will bring everything into judgment. Let's go to Ecclesiastes 12 and 9. Solomon wrote this at the end of his life. He had done so much wrong and finally came to the realization that he messed up big time. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 13 and 14. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Some will say, but Wayne, that's Old Testament. Okay, turn to Revelation 22, which is the last word in the New Testament. Revelation 22, starting in verse 12. So we look at the red words. Oh, lots of chance going out there. Yeah, all that's true. Revelation twenty two twelve. And behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. Not words, but work. What did they do? I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. That's how God refers to himself in Isaiah 41, 4. 
So Messiah is just reiterating the fact that he's God from all eternity. Then verse 14, unless you have an NIV or one of those corrupt Bibles, says, Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. So has it changed? No. When we come to faith in God, we love God because of what he did for us in sending his only begotten son. How do we respond to that love? By keeping his commandments. He says, and if you don't, it's because you don't love me. If you don't love him, that means you have no faith in him. Boy, isn't that a bright note. So let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and see if we can brighten this up a little bit. Verse 17 says, Comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Does that mean walking in sin, every good word and work? No, just the opposite. It means that the Lord has given us, because of his love, everlasting consolation and good hope by grace. So comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. And then we come to chapter 3. As we end Second Thessalonians. It says, finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. Just as it is with you. What's that mean? That the word of the Lord would spread like a fire in dry grass. It just cannot be stopped. Because it is for God's glory that people be saved. And how can they be saved except they heard? You remember those verses? So may the gospel message just go out like a consuming fire that cannot be stopped. Let's go to Luke chapter 1, verse 47. Luke chapter 1, verse 47. thought I heard somebody saying there aren't 47 verses, but yes, there are. Okay. <laughs> I make that mistake sometimes. Luke chapter 1, verse 47. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. Oh, wow. The scripture says we have only one Savior. And who is that? That's our Messiah, Yeshua. But this says God is my Savior. Does that mean Yeshua is God? Yes. Remember the song we sang today, El Gabor, which means mighty God. It's not just mighty God, but the word Gabor is a mighty soldier. It refers to the Lord being the Lord of hosts, the one who leads the heavenly armies in judgment in Revelation chapter 19. And let's look at the book of Jude. J-U-D-E, Jude. In Hebrew it's actually Judah, but well, we won't worry about that. Don't ask me what chapter or you're not there yet. Because there's only one. Jude 1 verse 25. 
To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Who is Jude referring to as God our Savior? Messiah Yeshua, which is interesting because that's his half-brother. And if you remember, way back in the Gospels, his brothers came with Mary to take Yeshua home, saying, hey, he's a little touched in the head. Remember? So how did his brothers, like Jude, come to faith? After his resurrection, he came and said, now tell me who's touched in the head. <laughs> Put your hands here. Put your fingers here. And they said, uh-oh. Boy, were we wrong. Yeah, yeah, I suspect so. All right, back to Second Thessalonians, chapter three. Chapter three, verse one. I'd love to just, let me put that down. Get off my finger. There we go. This is just a closing. No, it's so much more than just a closing. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Let's look at that phrase, the word of the Lord. How many times do you think it appears in the Bible? That phrase, the word of the Lord. 261 times. 247 in the Old Testament, 14 in the New Testament. Let's go look at the first one back in the Old Testament. Let's go to Genesis chapter 15. Oh, we know Genesis 15, don't we? That's the covenant with Abraham, the covenant between the parts, where the principle is established that salvation is by faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. That's, of course, Genesis 15, verse 6. And he, Abraham, or Abram as he was called then, believed in the Lord. And he counted him for righteousness. But we want to look at verses 1 and 4. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Avram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Avram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. It doesn't say the Lord came, does it? It says the word of the Lord came saying. The word of the Lord is a person. That's John 1, 1. Beginning was the word. And the word was with God and the word was God. And then in verse 14 it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt or tabernacled amongst us. So the word of the Lord came saying, I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. And in verse 4 it says, and Behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying. That word saying means it's a quote. So the word of the Lord is speaking. Saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. That's what Abraham believed. And God counted him for righteousness. God spoke and Abraham said, I believe it. Now put yourself in his place. He's 100 years old, never had a kid in his life. And the Lord says, hey, you're going to have all kinds of kids and descendants. And he says, okay, Lord, if you say so, I believe it. It would take a lot of faith. That word believed in Hebrew is ha'amin. 
It's for where we get the word amen. God spoke and Abraham believed it. Let's look at Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9, verse 20 and 21. Exodus chapter 9, verses 20 and 21. says, He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. So some of Pharaoh's servants feared the word of the Lord. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. What happened to those who left them in the field? They died. They lost them. What about those who believed the Lord? Then they survived. Their faith gave them life. Numbers chapter 15. Wayne? Yes, sir. I always... Um uh, take those to be those that left um, with the children of Israel afterwards. I agree. It says that they considered Moses a great man, and that's how I explain to, to my folk at least that verse is important for yep. talking about the mixed multitude. You're exactly right. Where did the mixed multitudes come from? They were servants in Egypt who believed the word of the Lord. They put blood upon their doorpost and lintel, and God passed over them, and they left with the children of Israel. You're exactly right. I agree with you 100%, Edmund. Numbers 15, verse 31. Oh, I think we should start in verse 30. But the person who does anything presumptuously, that is, sins consciously and intentionally against God. Whether he is native-born or a stranger, that is, whether he's a Jew or a Gentile, makes no difference. That one brings reproach on the Lord and shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt shall be upon him. Does that make you think of 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 19, circumcision is nothing? And uncircumcision is nothing, but keeping the commandments of God is what matters. It tells us right here, it doesn't matter whether he's a Jew or a Gentile. If he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, person shall be cut off. Deuteronomy 5.5. 5. Deuteronomy 5.5. 5. Deuteronomy 5.5 5. I stood between the Lord and you at that time. Who's the you? That's the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. To declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire and you did not go up the mountain. He said to declare the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord here, he's talking about the commandments, statutes, and judgments. But Messiah is called the word of the Lord. Messiah is the law, the Torah in human form. 
And one thing that's come up in questions, look also at verse 8 through 10. Question came up this morning. You shall not make for yourself a carved image that is an idol to worship. Any likeness of anything that's in heaven above this in the earth beneath or this in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations. People go, wait a minute, the scripture says God doesn't hold the children accountable for the sins of the father. We have to read the rest of the sentence. Of those who hate me. That is, if the children continue to hate God and practice idolatry instead, then the punishment will continue to the children. So if they want to break that cycle, what do they do? They repent. Once they repent, they're no longer hating God and they no longer suffer the judgment. It doesn't mean that because my father was a Satan worshiper, which he may well have been, that God will hold me accountable because I don't follow his practices. I do not hate the Lord. In verse 10, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and what? Keep my commandments. So whether we go to the Old Testament, the New Testament, they all teach the same thing. So let's go to the book of Acts chapter 8. Sometimes people say, Wayne, why do you keep flipping between the Old Testament and the New Testament? It's because I want us to see that it teaches the same thing. But we were taught growing up that it teaches something completely different. Yeah, I want you to see with your own eyes that what it teaches is the same. Acts chapter 8, verse 25. So when they had finished and preached the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many villages of the Samaritans. So the word of the Lord is the gospel. And what is the word of the Lord? We read in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. The same word of the Lord from Mount Sinai. In Acts chapter 13 verse 49. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the region. That's what Paul was asking for prayers for in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. That that spreading of the word of the Lord would continue. How many of you have ever started a little fire in a hay field to burn off a little bit of the edge and then a wind came through? And suddenly the wheat field's all gone. You're going, whoops, I picked the wrong day. That's what he wants the gospel to do. The word of God is to just spread such that it cannot be controlled. So let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. That the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you. Meaning may they accept it with their whole hearts and let God write the word upon their hearts. You know, we should add one more. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11.
Remember when the Apostle Paul preached till midnight, the guy fell out the window and died? Don't let me go that long. If I forget to stop, just remind me. Isaiah 55, 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. But it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. Does that mean the word of God will never fail? That's what it says. So add to that Psalm 89, 34. Psalm 89, verse 34. We do know that one, don't we? Psalm 89, 34. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. That's why Messiah could confidently say in Matthew 4, 4, that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 2. And, he says, add this to your prayer list. That we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men. For not all have faith. But the Greek is not unreasonable. That's not a correct translation. The word is unrighteous or perverse men. So the unrighteous and wicked men, for not all have faith. Those of faith turn away from the unrighteousness, turn away from the perverseness. But not the Wicked and unrighteous. Verse 3. But the Lord is faithful. Oh, that word is what? Pistos, right? P-I-S-T-O-S. But the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. What does it mean to be faithful? The Lord is never going to break his promise. My covenant I will not break, nor alter the word that has gone out of my lips. He says right here, the Lord is faithful. He will never break his word. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. People say, Wayne, we're allowed to eat pork today. Acts chapter 10 says so. Actually, no, it doesn't. So then why is there no place in the New Testament that says not to eat it? Well, yeah, there is. It's right here. 2 Corinthians 6. Let's start in verse 14. Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness, their opposites. What communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Messiah with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? What's that word there for believer? It's one who is faithful. One who has faith, one who doesn't have faith. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them. Wait a minute, how does God dwell in us? Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts. 
and walk among them. I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch, do not cling to what is unclean, and I'll receive you. Do not cling to what is unclean, and I will receive you. I'll be a father to you, shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Hmm. And then adding, you know, Psalm 89.34 and Matthew 4.4. We've just read them, looked at them, quoted them. And go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Verse 4. Paul's continuing to speak to the Thessalonians. And he says, And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. What does Paul command them? To walk in righteousness, in sanctification through the Holy Spirit and through the word, which is truth. So in verse 4, it says that you do and will do, which means you are currently doing and will continue to do. Verse 5. Now may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Messiah. Wait a minute. Didn't we just read something about the love of God? Didn't we read something that says, what is the love of God? That we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. That's 1 John chapter 5 verses 2 and 3. So may the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God, that you will be obedient to God out of love, not out of fear. Because you love the Lord. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. What about this, though, the patience of Messiah? Let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3. Starting in verse 2, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope in our Lord Yeshua the Messiah. That is the hope that Messiah will come and take us home one day, what we call the rapture and the resurrection. What was that last reference, Brother Wayne? First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Thank you. Yeah. And then Revelation chapter 1 9. Revelation chapter 1 9. I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Yeshua the Messiah was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Yeshua the Messiah. John was exiled to Patmos after they tried to boil him alive in oil and he survived by the grace of God. So they exiled him to Patmos. And he spent the time writing the book of Revelation explaining that the kingdom is coming. We must be patient and wait for it. 
In 2 Peter 3, it tells us why the rapture and resurrection haven't come yet. It's not time yet, but why? 2 Peter chapter 3. What does God want everyone to do? To be saved. Start in verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I strew up your pure minds, that is, get sin out of your mind, by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, that is, all the prophets throughout the Old Testament history who taught about the coming Messiah and our need to repent. And of the commandment of us, that is, the commandment of the prophets and the commandment of the apostles are the same the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, the scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. Oh, surely you're not going to tell me that there are Christians in the world today that are walking in sin according to their lusts. And saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Don't tell me there's a rapture and resurrection coming. I've been hearing that all my life. That's a sign that it's almost here. For by this they willfully forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old and the earth standing out of water and in water by which the world that then existed perished being flooded with water but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. That's a long-winded way of saying God spoke it into existence 6,000 years ago and it's still here. So God can be very patient and his word endures. Verse 8 says, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promises. Some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Meaning that's what God wants, is everyone to repent. But means, yeah, they won't, though. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Let's go back to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. We're up to verse 6. But we command you, brethren. That word command actually just means entreat solemnly, kind of like we're begging you. We command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Yeshua the Messiah, that you, walk, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the traditions, there's that paradisus again, which he received from us. So if he will not walk in the commandments, statutes, and judgments of God, it says withdraw from him. Just like in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, where the man was having sexual relations with his father's wife, and Paul said, get him out of the church. Get him out of the church so he realizes that he cannot continue in this sin and think he's on the road to heaven. And when they put him out of the congregation, 2 Corinthians says he repented and turned away from his sin and then was restored back to the congregation. But it was to let him know that you cannot continue in this kind of sin and expect to be going to heaven. 
We continue in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3 with verse 7. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us, for we were not disorderly among you. The word disorderly means idle. How did the Apostle Paul and those with him eat and get places to sleep at night and the things that they needed? Did they pass an offering plate? No, what they do? They worked. That's what Paul says. You know that we worked while we were with you. We set an example for you. Verse 8. Nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge. We paid our way. But worked with labor and toil night and day. Remember the disciples or the, those who wrote the scriptures said Paul was a tent maker. Which is more accurately a talit maker, but we don't want to worry about that. But he worked to provide for his own needs and the needs of the evangelism team that was with him, Timothy and Silas. That we might not be a burden to any of you. He's following the example of Messiah as Messiah gave to the apostles in Matthew chapter 10. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 10. And he even goes beyond what Messiah commanded them. we got just a couple more minutes, then we're out of time. Matthew 10, 8. He's sending the disciples out two by two. It says, heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons... Freely you have received, freely give. So were they supposed to go around passing offering plates and saying, give me 10% of your income and make sure it's your pre-tax income, not after tax? The answer is no. Freely you've received, freely give. And we remember the words of Micah chapter 3 verse 11, don't we? In Micah chapter 3, verse 11, the Lord is bringing charges against the, the community, the children of Israel. It says, her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Does God say this is a good thing? No. The scripture was given to us freely. How shall we give it to others? Freely. Verse 9, let's go back to 2 Thessalonians 2.9. Not because we do not have authority. Messiah said you can eat the bread and sleep in the houses when they offer it to you. But Paul says we didn't even do that. But to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us, he said, we wanted to be an example. That's why we work for our food. We didn't want to mooch off others. Verse 10 says, for even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not work, comma, neither shall he eat. But the believer, someone in Thessaloniki had said, hey, the Lord's coming to take us home one of these days. Let's just quit working and sit here and sing kumbaya. Well, let somebody else feed us. Well, let somebody else take care of us. God said, no, nope, if you don't work, go hungry. For we hear that there are some who among you walk in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. Now those who are such we command and exhort through our Lord Yeshua the Messiah that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. 
But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. And if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person and do not keep company with him that he may be ashamed. That way he might repent and come back into the fold. Yet do not count him as an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So when you see a brother walking in sin, let them know that what they're doing is wrong and encourage them to repent. Now we end the 2 Thessalonians book with verses 16 through 18. And may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always in every way. The Lord be with you all. The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Paul said, just look at my signature. You know it's me, my eyesight's bad. I write really big. Just think of John Hancock on the Declaration of Independence. The grace of our Lord Yeshua and the Messiah be with you all. Amen. Having finished the book, what do we say? Chazak, chazak, venish, chazak, which means be strong, be strong, and may we be strengthened. For how are we strengthened as believers? It's by studying the word of God. We'll pick up next week, Lord willing, in Zechariah chapter 1.